Hello, my name is David, the host of the podcast Navigating Hollywood. I'm here to gather experts on how we as artists can navigate through the business. I hope you receive as much value as me with our honored guest. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is David, and I'm here with my honored guest, Mr. Gordon Firemark. And he is an entertainment lawyer, and he has been practicing it for over 20 years. Mr. Gordon, how are you doing? Hi, I'm really good, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I'm gl- glad to have you on the podcast. So, as an entertainment lawyer, what is your role exactly in the business? Well, I am a uh, transactional lawyer, so that means I don't go to court. I'm not a litigation person. I do deals, and um, I advise my clients in regard to all of their business dealings in the entertainment industry from the formation of their business entities, companies like limited liability companies and corporations, to the management and negotiation of all the contracts for the development and production of the material that they create and, or perform in. And um, I, uh, I like to think of myself as a trusted advisor. Whenever something yes. comes up, they can ask. So you very much remind me of Tyrion Lannister when he's out neg- helping out um, your <laughs> fellow uh, leaders out there. So, Hand of it, the king. I like <laughs> Hand of the king right there. <laughs> so so uh, who do you mainly work with from in the film industry? Like, who are your top clients? Most of my clients are are on the creative business side. So they're producers, some writers. Um, uh, so the creative, they're bringing their creative uh, uh, talents to bear, but on the business of making content, whether it's film, television, or live theater, which is my personal passion. Oh, live theater. I need to go to those more often. Um, they're, they're wonderful stuff. I was thinking about, uh, so what kind of advice do you give to, like, producers who are starting an LLC right out the gate? Well, so they're f- like they're fresh meat in the business. Well, usually the advice is that they should start an LLC or something to separate their personal stuff from their business stuff. Uh, and that's both for, you know, the reason that you don't want something that happens on your, in your personal life coming in and um, consuming the business assets, right. but also if something happens in your business life, you don't necessarily want to lose your home or your mm-hmm. your retirement funds over uh, a mistake that was made in the business. So that's one of the important reasons to form entities. Uh, another reason you form entities is to uh, use the tools available to raise financing capital by selling uh, securities interests in the company. And uh, that's a situation where you're bringing on partners or, or other uh Venturers, and again, you want to be able to make sure you're clear on who owns what. I find it very interesting that you brought up separating the business and the personal mm-hmm. because I feel like in the 21st century, they're trying to intertwine the personal brand and the businesses. I feel like they're trying to mix those two together. So what's a good way, because a lot of people are using social media to promote themselves and or their businesses. What, what advice do you have for them for separating their personal life, like let's say, you know, family and friends, and for their business, how? what advice do you have for separating those two? Well, I think the formation of an entity is, is an important uh, step in that direction. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean you have to be publicly associated only with one or the other. But uh, if you keep your personal opinions and your personal expression uh, in your personal life, mm-hmm. personal uh, social pages and things like that, and then when it's when it's time to do business, you keep it sort of business-like there. And you know there can be some cross-pollination as long as you're not commingling your personal money with your business money and things like that. Mm-hmm. The uh, 
the power of the entity is really pretty strong to help you protect yourself, your assets, and, uh, uh, and leverage things into success. Okay, that's a very good point. So what I was thinking about is, because as a lawyer, do you also negotiate deals? Yes, quite a lot. Okay, so what's the difference in an agent negotiation and a lawyer negotiation? Really not much, except who's doing the negotiating. Now, oftentimes, um, lawyers will be looking at different deal points than the agent might be concerned with in order to protect the client against some perceived liability or... um, or risk, whereas the agent is maybe more concerned, and this is a generalization, of course, but maybe more concerned with the dollars and the credit. Um, you know, ideally, a good agent is looking at all the same points that a good lawyer does, but we have our natural tendency because of the way we perceive our roles to um, uh, the agent's job is really to maximize value, and the lawyer's job is to protect against risk and liability yeah. and uh, and still allow the career to move forward. So coming at it from different angles, but ultimately we hope we get to the same point. Yeah, because I feel like there are some similarities. I just want to clarify the differences because of agents more about getting the best deal, like pretty much from like, you know, trying to make sure that you get the best bang for your buck. Whereas you, there's probably some intricate details in contracts that you probably say mm-hmm. that you point like, hey, hold on, I noticed that he's probably getting 5% on the back end. Like, that's not right or mm-hmm. anything like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, there's nuance that that I think lawyers may look to, uh, for lack of a better term, nitty-gritty kinds of deal points right. that, um, you know, whereas the agent may be looking more to the big picture, long-term career kind of stuff. But really, there's a role for both. And in a perfect world, uh, an artist would have both an agent and a, ma- and a lawyer representing so that those issues get covered. And frankly, it's a good uh, it's a good way to have a sort of tag team approach to things. The agent gets to be the good guy yes. and uh, lawyer gets to be bad cop. Yeah, good cop, bad cop. Yeah. For me, like, especially getting to know you, I thought it would be like reverse where the agent's probably the bad cop and you're the good cop. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It just depends on the dynamics of the relationship. That is true. You did mention that there's a lot of nuance in mm-hmm. there. So for negotiation, I want to talk about like um, negotiation tips and tricks for mm-hmm. our fellow artists out there. So you you told me about a scorched earth strategy, <laughs> where as in as in like let's say that we are struggling to find investors and they decline, decline, decline because we're looking mm-hmm. for a five million dollar deal, and let's say they give you five hundred thousand, take it or leave it, when that's ten times less than what you offer. How would you negotiate around the scorched earth deal? Well, you know the scorched earth strategy. <clears throat> excuse me. You know the scorched earth strategy is really a, it's just playing hardball in a negotiation. If you're not getting what you need from a deal, because either because the other side is playing that scorched earth approach, or the other side just doesn't have what you need to give, um, then the answer is you walk away. You you just thanks, but I guess we can't do a deal. We'll find something somewhere else. Um, The strongest bargaining power anybody ever has is the ability and willingness to say no to a lousy deal. Mm. Um, However, when you're confronted with that scorched earth or or just a hard-line negotiation, um, saying no is a great approach, but you always want to leave the door open for the other side to sort of save face and, and admit, at least to themselves, that they might have miscalculated and to come back with a more favorable uh, proposal uh, if they're so inclined. 
and uh, so you don't want to shame them or embarrass them right. when you when you pass on the deal. It's just thanks. I guess we can't do it this time. That's a very good point because I feel like just because when people say no, that doesn't mean that you have to burn bridges. So how would you make sure that when when you don't when both parties don't get what they want, how do you make sure that these two parties actually you know don't you know burn each other's bridges and make sure that they get along just fine. You know, I think the real key to any successful negotiation is the preparation and getting started from a point of, first off, you have to understand and really know what it is you must have in the deal, what your absolute got to have it or else I can't do the deal deal points are. And likewise, you have to try to predict or anticipate what the Mm -hmm. other side's absolute must have deal breaker uh, lines are so that you can frame the conversation in between those those areas or, or so they overlap. Um, once you have the, the must-haves, then you want to get into the nice-to-haves and, the you know, it would be awesome to have kind of provisions. And it makes sense to judge the situation but ask for what you really would like to have in the deal, the best-case scenario for you, uh, while still giving the other, op- the other side an opportunity to, to have a beneficial deal. After all, we're building something, not right. tearing it down. That's a that's a very interesting point because I feel like a lot of people are more concerned with what they want. And I understand that you want to get the best deal for you as much as possible, which it's it's very rational thought. However, a lot of people don't take into consideration on what the other person's thinking. W- would you agree with that idea? Um, I think skilled negotiators generally do have – they do their prep and they do right. try to – analyze the other side's point of view. I think one of the one of the things that you see inexperienced negotiators um, encounter is they walk in without any idea sometimes of, of even what their own need is uh, and, and oftentimes without really an understanding of the business need on the other side of the table. So you know, classic example is you're going to buy a new car. You walk into a, a car dealership. The dealership needs to sell cars. And you need wheels, and you don't want to spend more than you have to to get that. What you may not realize is also that the individual salesman needs to make his numbers this month, maybe even this week or today. And so if you time your your walk into the dealership right, you may be able to get him on a good day where he's willing to give up a chunk of his commission on the sale in order to get you the deal you want. So understanding that it, it's not always just about the dollars or just about a particular particular deal point, but there's other stuff going on in the background. Likewise, when you're dealing with a studio executive, if the studio executive has, um, has had a really successful uh, couple of weeks with projects that have just gone through the roof, you're going to have a harder time getting a sweet deal out of them on this one because they feel they've got a lot of bargaining power clout. Uh, and the converse is also true, just the same as if you have uh, – uh, just sold a big screenplay and made a big splash with a with a project. The next one you do is going to be a little easier to do, just by virtue of the bargaining power that goes in there. And so, understanding all these moving parts and how it all fits together and where you fit into the into the the blend of things really can give you the perspective to come in with an understanding of what the deal should look like when it's done. Because I like how you mentioned how you say, like, the environment also plays a role, like, in the studio system, like you mentioned. Like, for example, I think it's going to be harder for a lot of artists to pitch to Blumhouse that's Mm -hmm. been blowing up with all sorts of these films. So what should a – what in the power of the producer, I would like to say in their position, 
What can they do to prepare for a negotiation with, uh, let's start with a, a studio, because I know that, correct me if I'm wrong, a pit, um, negotiating with a studio versus an actual investor are two completely yeah. different environments. So let's start with the studio negotiations. What can they do beforehand to start with the negotiations? Well, as I said, do your research. Try to understand what's been going on with that studio, and in particular, the executive that you're talking to in the negotiation. Um, understanding the the company's perspective, what's been going on with their earnings maybe can be a factor, uh, what their recent successes and losses have been, and really trying to understand why they want this project. Obviously, they wouldn't be engaging in this negotiation at all unless there was some sense that they wanted. They're not just doing you a favor, right? So, <coughs> excuse me. So they want this project and you understanding what it is about the project they want and punching on those points over and over again. Now, if it's a matter that you've got a great screenplay by a writer who just blew up and, and had an Academy Award winning film, that may be it. But maybe it's also that you've got a strong or the writer has a strong relationship with a particular actor mm. and they want that actor to do a deal mm. maybe the studio already has an overall deal with an actor mm. and so they need to buy this property to make that actor happy because right. it's a, the right fit for that actor so there's a lot of stuff that you can do to understand why you're having this discussion at all it's not just oh they like our piece we're going to sell it to them there's much more going on most of the time and look everybody's in this business to make money and but also to make art Let's move on to the investor. So w when you negotiate with an investor, how do producers angle that? Well, you know, investment financed films tend to be the lower budget independent movies. And so the investors really do have a lot of the bargaining power. They've got the money, you know, the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. Mm -hmm. So um, when, an, when a producer is going to an investor asking for money, you're usually giving up a fair, fairly sizable stake in the project that you're making. And so... Um, once you're, once you're there, it's really just a question of how many dollars in exchange for how much equity in the project. Right. And um, investors tend to come at this with a business approach. They're, for them, it is about the money and the, the dollars and their potential return on investment. But it's important to remember that people who invest in film or theater or whatever generally do it for more than just the return on investment. In fact, it's a very risky kind of an investment, so they, they have to understand that. So preparing to negotiate with that, uh, that uh, investor, again, you want to understand what's motivating them. Do they want to see this particular film made because they have a, an affinity for the writer or the producer or the director, or do they have an affinity for the subject matter of this project? Maybe it's um, they want to see their name in the credits, and so you're, giving, you're maybe willing to give a little better credit uh, provision than you might to someone else who's just coming because they invest in movies. So there's, all again, all kinds of things that you could consider. Um, but ultimately, preparing for negotiation is understanding who you're dealing with, what motivates them, and um, and uh, your, the relative bargaining power of the parties. Because for invest investing in an investor, now correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. um, the studios actually care a little bit more on the creative side of things. Like they want to be more hands-on on the story rather as an investor, does the investor tend to <clears throat> interfere with the story as often as the studio? It really depends on the investor. And some studios are pretty hands-off. If they trust the producer and writer of the project and the director, they may be willing to just sort of, you know, hands-off until dailies start coming in or until they 
um, until it's time to really give the green light, and then they'll give things a review and approvals and so on. Investors sometimes are very active in, in the or wanting to be very active in the creative aspects of things. And that's something that uh, I usually counsel my, my producer clients to be very wary of, um, unless the producer is also the writer, excuse me, unless the financier is also the writer or, or um, you know, has other involvement in the project. Uh, they should be putting their money behind the people and the, you know, the merits of the project on the general level. They should, you know, they may want to read the script. But, you know, when you start getting script notes from someone who's really just coming in with money, they stop being a mere investor and they start being a co-producer. Right. And so if you don't want to have that kind of a relationship, you need to put a stop to it early. Yeah, because I feel like sometimes um, when for the for the producer, for the investors, it's mm-hmm. I, I f- because like um from the perspective like giving notes as a as an investor is pretty rare these days would you say you know i think you might be surprised how often an investor comes really? to the producer and says i love this but it would be really great if that happened really? or wouldn't it be great if we could get so and so to be in that movie that would make me invest in a heartbeat yes m- well for like I-, I know for a producer you have to you have to like gather a whole package yeah. So, a- as a lawyer, do, do do you get involved in the package as often, like the packaging for like the the actor and director? Uh, so, how's that process? Well, to the extent that I represent a producer mm-hmm. who is hiring an actor, hiring a director, hiring a writer, I'm involved in drawing up all those contracts mm-hmm. and oftentimes negotiating on the with the agents or, or representatives for those people. And so, yeah, I, it is part of my role to advise and counsel my client, the producer, along the way. Now, I don't want to inject, interject my own artistic creative sensibilities right. because, frankly, I'm, I, I, I didn't make it as a film director, <laughs> so uh, as a filmmaker. So I am, I'm here to talk about the business realities of things. Now, if I think that a particular performer isn't quite right for this role and that the, if I feel like the investor is strong-arming the producer, hey, you want my money, you're going to use so-and-so as the lead actress in this role – and it turns out it's because it's the girlfriend or the producer or something mm-hmm. of the financier or something. You know, I, I'll say so. I'll say I think you're being strong-armed here. I think this is probably not a good move. Or let's give her the the base most basic deal we can. You know, lots of uh, uh, lots of things that I can do to influence outcome. But ultimately, I do what my clients want done mm-hmm. within the law, of course. Oh yeah, of course, in the law, no doubt. <laughs> So also you, you you have quite a bit of clients that are writers, right? A handful, yeah. Handful. So for them, uh, do you handle the the copywriting of the IP? You know, registering copyrights is is such an easy thing that most of my clients just do it themselves. I do have a few clients who just send mm-hmm. me stuff and say, "Here, get it done," and I get it done and send them a bill. But it takes so little time that it's almost not worth my trouble, right? To to do that. Uh, if I have a client that I want to keep happy, then of course I keep doing it. For the writers um, that are listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. um, how, how do they copyright their own scripts? Well, the good news is you get a copyright the moment you set pen to paper or start typing into your computer. So you own a copyright the moment you create an original work and fix it in some tangible form. Now, the copyright registration is uh, through the Library of Congress, the, the United States Copyright Office. You can go to copyright.gov if you're in the U.S. and uh, fill out a form. It's not the easiest website to navigate, but... Uh, um, if you uh, if you fill out the form and submit the the filing fee of I think it's forty five or fifty dollars and a copy of the work you get a 
a registration certificate in the mail a few months later. So it's really relatively simple. And it's a good idea to do it because uh, if you want to sue somebody later, you must have registered. If you want to collect your attorney's fees later uh, in a lawsuit, you must have registered within three months of publication. And um, and if you want to receive the statutory damages, which means you don't have to prove your losses, then, again, great idea to uh, get that registered. So I recommend registering early well, and often. I feel like, if, it, if anything that you post out there, there should be some form of copyright. But mm-hmm. what about saying it through the WGA? So is that like after everything's copyrighted, or how's that process? So the Writers Guild of America offers a, um, I'd sort of call it a almost parallel, <coughs> excuse me, the Writers Guild of America offers a almost parallel registration system where it's really just an opportunity to record the the date and time at which this work existed in this particular form with the Writers Guild of America. And, and the, what it offers is the opportunity for someone from the guild to come into a courtroom, if it ever becomes necessary, and say, here's the script in its form on that date that, that it was registered. Unfortunately, it doesn't fulfill the registration requirement for the copyright law, and the courts have said you can't sue until you've registered it, until you've received the certificate back from the government, which is why I say focus your energy on registering for copyright, not for the Writers Guild. Right, because I, because I feel like if you have a uncopyrighted script, someone can hijack them. Yeah. Has that happened like a couple of times in the industry? You know, I'm not sure that people grab the script and run, you know, that kind of uh, hijacking. But uh, it's it's pretty common that material that was in a script does end up in something else. And um, sometimes it's just from someone, their memory from having read it or something like that. I, I like to think most people are honest about it. And these mistakes are honest mistakes. But, yeah, copyright infringement does happen. People do. Um, maybe they think they own it for some reason and they don't. Maybe they... Uh, uh, didn't remember that it came from somewhere, and the, so the storyline has been bouncing around in their head for a few years. Uh, there, there are cases in, in the copyright jurisprudence of songwriters who uh, wrote a song and were accused of, of copying something from 40 or 50 years ago that uh, you know they must have heard because they were a kid listening to the radio in right. the 50s or whatever, and it happens. And um, so copyright infringement, while it may not be intentional, hmm. Um, is still a real thing. Yeah, especially with Article 13. They kind of muddied up the waters for more copyright with, like, anything with music, even, like, clips that, like, if, I, if I'm talking, I put, like, something like Breaking Bad oh, talking over yeah. this, I could still, you know, but I could still get, you know, flagged for that. Yeah, so Article 13 is the EU um, creating a new, a new component of their copyright law that will probably be ratified by a number of the EU countries that that basically takes uh, online copyright infringement in the form of if you submit a YouTube video, if you if you're a gamer and you put one of those gaming videos on what is it, Twitch or, or some of the other um, uh, uh, providers, it's going to make those companies and you, the person who posts it, more responsible for the infringement from the get go. So uh, here in the US, we have the DMCA takedown procedure. And it sort of puts the onus on the copyright owner to go and find the infringers and beat them down um, uh, using this procedure, sort of like a game of whack-a-mole. In, the, in Europe, what's going to happen is uh, the, um, the YouTubes and the Twitches and those kinds of companies will be held responsible for finding the infringements before they're posted. So it, it changes the game for those kind of companies. And what I think is happening is they're 
basically saying we're just not going to accept this kind of material from people who, or we're not going to let it be seen in the in the European Union, stuff like that. So, because there's a lot of educational YouTube videos that do talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, what are some creative ways to like meander around Article 13? Because Europe, um, population-wise, um, the European Union's like over 500 million people. Yeah. Those, those are quite a big big numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how can um, how can the YouTubers still create their content wi- without, you know, because I feel like there's a lot of despair mm-hmm. in, the, in the educational community. Yeah. So how can they make the same quality content without being flagged for this stuff? I think the short answer is they can't. If you want to use other people's copyrighted material in your project, you need to go get permission. And here in the U.S., we have the fair use exception or defense to copyright infringement. That protection of that defense stops at the U.S. borders. So if you're, you know, in Europe and you have a piece of music that you think is fair use here, mm-hmm. over there it's not. And so you better get permission. Well, a lot of, uh, there's some, like, would you say that Article 13 helps or hurts um, independent filmmakers, in your opinion? I haven't really thought about how it impacts independent filmmakers per se, um, I think it's going to require filmmakers of all sorts to make sure that everything they use and that they put into their projects is cleared. If you want a piece of music in your film, go get the rights, both from the recording company and the publishing company. If you want to use a painting in the background of a shot, you better have the copyright from the painter uh, or the artist who created that. If you want to use a piece of a TV show on the set in the you know in the living room of the scene, you better have a clip license for that. It's that's the rules. Those have always been the rules of the game, but uh, we've gotten complacent here in the U.S. with mm-hmm. the fair use exception and and uh, First Amendment free speech principles mm-hmm. that just don't apply overseas. So it's going to make us. Uh, I think we're going to have to be a little more rigid about the rules. I mean that's that's pretty sad, but. Well, hey, you want to build a house, you buy the lumber from a lumberyard, right? right? So, you know, you, you buy the land and then you hire an architect and you pour the cement. All those things come from vendors. Yeah. There's no reason that if you want to put a component in your film, you shouldn't also purchase the right to do that. Well, I do feel like we want to protect someone's work as much as possible yeah. because we don't want some bootleg, you know, let's mm-hmm. say from Russia come in and then post a whole entire, you know, video mm-hmm. because um, someone mentioned to me that um, Moonlight had, like, 50 million illegal downloads. You know, mm. the best picture. It, it, because, like, think about all that money that could have, like, gone to the artist mm-hmm. who done this stuff. Uh, I, I feel like this is some interesting double-edged sword art, Article 13 yeah. can create for artists. Yeah, this Article 13 is definitely something we all have to be thinking about, and, and I do think it is double-edged uh, on the one hand. And let's face it, we are both creators and consumers of content, right? right? So when we're creating content using other people's stuff, we have to think for a minute about, well, who owns this, and am I using it in a way that they wouldn't, you know, that they would be okay with? How do I go get that permission? Uh, on the other side, yeah, when you're creating the stuff, what if they did it to me? Right. That, so. That's definitely true. Like, I honestly personally have a no piracy uh, film policy mm-hmm. because I because I I am an aspiring filmmaker and I want to pay for the yeah. the content that I see because I feel like that's fair towards the artist. Yeah. And one final question. What advice do you give to an artist when they're starting out? 
That's that's the final question. That's a very broad question. Let me see. What what advice would I give to an artist just starting out? Um, I think I would say to the artist, it's great that you make art, but there's a business here, and we need to always keep our eye on that ball. It's very nice to get paid for your art. It's better, yeah, it's better still for everybody involved in the making of the art to get paid something so that everybody is able to show up the next time and make more. So as an artist, don't give away your stuff for free. Don't be willing, don't be too willing to work for exposure. Exposure doesn't put food on the table, doesn't put a roof over your head. It's nice once in a while to be recognized and we all like to be um, celebrated for the work that we do. But all of that and a paycheck is really what you're after. So, very, very well put down. Like that, that was some great stuff. And also here, here is Mr. Gordon Firemark. He has a podcast called Entertainment Law Update, and he goes way deeper into this stuff. So, if you want to learn about entertainment law and what's going on in entertainment law, go check out his podcast. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, David. And cut.